Welcome to the Cloud Architects Podcast, a podcast about cloud, technology, and the people using it. The Cloud Architects Podcast is sponsored by Kemp Technologies. Choose Kemp to optimize your multi-cloud application deployments and simplify multi-cloud application management. A single pane of glass for application delivery, Kemp provides a 360-degree view of your entire application environment and even third-party ADCs. Download Kemp 360 for free today at kemptechnologies.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cloud Architects podcast. Yes, I feel the same as you. It's been a while. It has definitely been a while. It's been a crazy year, and I think that this is like going to be the first of many Corona episodes um, where we talk about things that have been happening and sort of how we've been forced to change the way we work. And so I'd like to introduce my co-hosts yet again. It's good to see you guys. Hey, it's Nick. Hey, Chris here. And today we have an amazing guest and uh, we'll introduce him shortly. I think Nick wants to pick on me a little bit. I do, I do. And I want to pick on Warren and Chris both because both of them have had some changes lately. And we want to talk about some of those changes because they do have context for today's show. And I'm going to add a little bit of a mystery by saying that they have both joined two of the world's largest security vendors. And so why don't we start with you, Warren? Why don't you tell us what have you been doing lately? Yeah, so, you know, it's strange when you say security vendor, right? Because that's that's a new thing. I mean, whoever thought that uh, Microsoft would be a security vendor? Um, so yeah, I started working for Microsoft this month. Um, it was, it was, it was a bit tough because I had to give up my MVP status, but it's okay. Um, I don't have a trophy anymore. I more have a blue badge. So, I mean, it's somewhere here and I could probably show you, but yeah, <laughs> I have and a congratulations on that. Yeah. Well <laughs> Thank done. you. Congrats. So cloud solutions yeah. architect. Um, I guess the really cool thing is that, um, um, I get to use the internal Microsoft tenant now for Azure. Yes. <laughs> Oof. Okay. <laughs> but anyway. For all your hosting right? requirements, <laughs> it's uh, at Warren DT on Twitter. <laughs> you know, don't want to go breaking some new NDAs, but sure. Um, I think I think it, it, it's it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful company to work for. And as a uh, friend was saying a little bit earlier while we were bantering, um, such has done amazing things, man. Um, he really, really has. Incredible company to work for and like parental pandemic leave. Can you believe? So I get, if I wanted to, I mean, provided the workload isn't too hectic, I can do, I can teach my child. I can take leave and wow. teach my child, which is, which is pretty rad. So I think that's, 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 the, that's a cool thing. And yeah, like I say, it's, it's amazing to be actually sort of, you know, as an MVP, you sort of delve in it and you push to sort of create this second career. So with an MVP, I mean, you know, you you really work hard to maintain the two. And now I'm lucky enough to be like, okay, well, the two have merged. Um, so not only do I get to promote Microsoft technology and use Microsoft technology, it's like my job. So that's good. Yeah, well done. That's awesome, man. Congratulations Thanks. for that. 
Thank you. Oh, you, I guess everyone's looking at me now. So <laughs> yeah, we're all looking. You, you've had a huge yeah. change. It, yeah, I have actually, and it's it's been probably the biggest change for me in in my entire career. Right, for the first time ever, and I've been thinking about this a lot this this week in, in particular because for the first time ever, I'm not working for a very large Microsoft Gold partner. Right, um, and so that's been very interesting. And so I made a move, um, a bit of a career change, I guess, if you will. Uh, earlier in the year, um, so right after we recorded the last episode, which was in New Zealand, um, I, uh, I joined a company called Kodelsky Security, and so I'm going to be hitting up the uh, Microsoft practice, the Microsoft Security practice at Kodelsky, and uh, super excited because you know you mentioned before, you know Microsoft being one of the world's largest security vendors, right? And that's it's so true. That's the messaging that we're using, um, and uh, it's it's exciting to kind of be on the the forefront of that. So still working very much in the Office 365 space for now in the Microsoft 365 space. But very much focusing uh, and looking at everything through a security-focused lens now, um, as opposed to the productivity-focused lens from before. Um, and I guess that's part of why I think this episode kind of came together, because I've been uh, immersed in working with some really, really smart people. Uh, and one of those people has joined us on the call today. And I was super excited because it, my head started spinning day one, pick, start, you know, trying to pick up the vernacular and trying to pick up all the, the new concepts in this new cybersecurity world. Um, and so uh, we thought it'd be a really good idea to bring uh, Francisco Donoso onto the show to to talk a little bit about that world and break it down a little bit so that we can kind of do a, you know, um, cybersecurity for IT pros, if you will. And so with that, I want to introduce our guest today, uh, Francisco Fran. Welcome to the show. Welcome, hey, thank you very much for having me, Chris. Warren, Nick, it's a, it's a pleasure to, to be here. Yeah. Do you want to uh, just do a quick introduction and sort of tell the folks about yourself and, and what you do? And have done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, as Chris mentioned, we both work together at a company called Kudelski Security, and it's been a real pleasure the last few months getting a chance to work closely with Chris. We've been working very closely for the last few months, and that and that's been great. Um, as Chris mentioned, you know, I've I've been in cybersecurity for almost the uh, entirety of my professional career. I sort of fell into it uh, in the very beginning. I got a job at a company like Kudelski years ago, um, doing like security monitoring for a bunch of different companies. And uh, I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with cybersecurity, um, even though that, that wasn't a consideration, you know, when I was in school. Um, but through my career, <clears throat> sorry, guys, I've had an opportunity to actually kind of travel all over the world and work with some of the world's largest companies. I've, uh, you know, spent a lot of time in the Middle East after uh, some big uh, breaches of, of some of the world's most valuable companies, I got a chance to help organizations, uh, both you know across healthcare or all sorts of different places, um, kind of recover after some large breaches. And it's it's been a passion of mine helping organizations understand how things are changing with the cloud, if you will. Um, one of my favorite things about cybersecurity in general is. Uh, how quickly we have to adapt to new technology. I think all of us are probably familiar with that stuff as new technology comes out. Um, it, it's been a blast because I get to learn how to use it from a, like administrative perspective and then have to think through how do we potentially secure this stuff. Kubernetes and cloud environments and Office 365. Yes. <laughs> um, he said it. You said Kubernetes, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you said the K. <laughs> Somebody, um, at least it wasn't me. <laughs> um, and, and through my career, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to 
um, work at places like Kudelski building uh, security practice to help our customers. But I've also been a security engineer at a company that's now owned by Twilio uh, that processed more traffic per day than Twitter. Um, and I had to learn a lot about how people were managing infrastructure at scale and how that changed my perspective or my role as a security person. Um, and then I've, I've also worked for a startup where uh, I built all the Kubernetes stuff because we didn't have anything. We needed to deploy code. Kubernetes seemed like a, a cool project and then I had to figure out how to secure it. So I've, I've kind of been all over the place and I've enjoyed every second of it. It's not that easy to build Kubernetes from scratch, is it? <laughs> No, especially when you've never used them before. So it was a uh, it was a really it was a really fun experience, though, and uh, that that's really what I love about the industry that we're in, technology in general. Just like you, you just get thrown in and you have to figure it out. Um, how so. how much how much? And this this is a, this is a question. When I heard you were going to have you on the show, I was thinking to myself, the first question I'm going to ask is a Mr. Robot question. It's going to be like, how much like Mr. Robot is? being in security i mean because when you look at it he i mean all of those commands and things that he ran and obviously they did a lot of research into mr robot and what sort of rootkits were being run and kali linux and all that kind of stuff um like do you use kali linux um it, it really depends the answer is yes it depends uh -huh. on the environment right yeah uh, mr robot has done um, the best job that I've seen thus far in really kind of explaining what cybersecurity looks like from a, an attacker's perspective. And just recently, actually, I had the opportunity to join a company that was built by teams who used to build offensive stuff for people. Um, so I've had a lot of opportunity to work with some of the world's best hackers. Um, it was, it was mind-blowing because they would be able to go find a zero day, a zero day exploit in uh, technology used across the world in like two days, which I didn't know was possible at the time. But I think the biggest thing that, that um, all of those uh, shows kind of miss is just how much failure there is before that like success. Um, and mm, sure. what has to keep you going when you're in that side of the house, which is the attacker side, is you have to be okay with the failure, but really love the adrenaline of the success because it's like 99% failure and banging your head against something that you just don't understand to get to the point where you're like, oh my God, I did it. I exploited this thing and that's amazing. Okay, let me go back to pounding my head against the wall to figure out how to how to do the next thing. So I, I think that that's really what's remember, missing from most shows. Remember how you did it so that you could protect exactly. yourself against it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's fascinating, right? And I think I think part of that is, you know, the, the conversations, these types of conversations and the fact that we've all thought about and understood the need to be more security focused, especially in the last 10, 8 to 10 years, right? With everything's moving into the public domain, if you will, as far as like the cloud and stuff is now just publicly accessible. You can't just wrap your arms around um your data center anymore and go, okay, well, we'll just put a firewall and now stuff's protected, right? I remember, yeah. man, this would have been probably, I'm, I'm thinking probably around 2005, maybe 2004, I was at a tech ed event, Microsoft tech ed event. Um, it was in Joburg. So it was the early one and did them in, in you know, at, at Sun City. 
And there was a guy, a gentleman by the name of, um, was it Steve Riley, who used to work for Microsoft's Trustworthy Computing Group and went on to AWS. And I'm not sure where he is now, Riverbed, I think at one point too. And at that time, he was talking about the concept of uh, perimeter or boundaryless data centers, right? And I still remember the talk was called something like, you know, uh, it's 10 a.m., do you know where your data is? And people just lost their mind because this guy was like, it's the time is coming where you're not going to have a perimeter. You're going to have to shift stuff somewhere where every, anyone can access it and you need to rethink uh, what that means to you and your organization. And fast forward 15 years, you know, I mean, we've been going down this route for a while now, but fast forward 15 years, that has never been more true. So welcome to the cloud. Yeah, welcome to the cloud, yeah. right? So so we've all kind of been, this is something that's been on, our, I, I guess, in our minds for a little while, but I think when you start really digging into it, man, it's a whole new world, right? And so I guess, Fran, one of the things I want to do kind of, I guess, ask you or, or ask you to unpack for us and break out is the con some of the, the vernacular and the concepts that kind of float around in the, in the cyberspace, right? Because you hear people talk about blue team and red team and white hat and black hat. It sounds like people just love colors in the security world, but there's some really, they have very specific meanings though, right? Those terms and those phrases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before I do that, I'm sorry, I just got to mention something that you reminded me of um, that, that talk where you said, hey, you know, boundaryless networks and data centers are a real thing. The first time I had an experience like that, that had to kind of shift my entire mindset was, when I was working at a company that got purchased by Twilio, and um, we were processing so much data that when we started looking at firewall vendors for protecting our data center, it would have literally cost hundreds of millions of dollars to buy hardware powerful enough to secure our environment from like a traditional wow. network segmentation mm -hmm. perspective. So we had to shift and say, okay, well now we're managing firewalls at every single server. And it was just such an interesting shift that I think most organizations are now having to think about, right? Um, I don't know how many organizations are so large that they literally can't buy enough hardware to like process the the traffic from a, a firewall perspective. But that was a that was a really interesting change wow. in in um, kind of mindset for me. But yeah, yeah, just like you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of terms, and I think that this is something that's been especially pervasive in cybersecurity, and I'm not sure exactly why it's so bad in this specific uh, section, but um, we have a lot of terms like blue team, right? Which essentially is really just the defensive guys, right? So it, it actually, a lot of the terms that you hear in cybersecurity come from like old military backgrounds because some of the very first uh, people who, who started thinking about cybersecurity came from the like national security or defense space. So um, the the word red team is an example, which is intended to denote someone who's like trying to attack you in terms of a cybersecurity exercise. They're trying to break into your environment in order to help you see what could happen. Um, came from the from the military world, there would be a red team who would work on a training exercise with a team by, I don't know, breaking into some compound and seeing how far they could get. So the red team in cybersecurity is essentially the same thing. Hey, can we break into your organization? How far can we get? How realistic can we be? And the blue team is sort of the opposite of that, right? The, the defensive team who's sitting there trying to see if they can find those bad guys or in the real do, military do world. Do they work well together? 
Yeah, that's a that's like, a really yeah um, <laughs> because I, I, I mean like the one does the one and the one does the other but they're essentially trying to achieve the same result they're trying to find a way to prevent the person from getting in right um because obviously you're not talking in context of a black hat now you're not talking about hackers trying to do evil you're talking about two teams trying to achieve the same goal yeah i think what you're seeing now is more and more the, the answer is yes um Previously, not so much. And I've, I've had the opportunity now to be on both sides of the coin, and I've loved them both. Um, prior to joining Kodalski Security, I spent some time at a company that was trying to build an automated red team. And that was some of the, the most fun I've ever had mm. in my entire career. That's where I had to learn Kubernetes uh, <laughs> and figure out how to, how to secure an environment where we literally had zero days. Um, like we literally had millions of dollars of zero days that we developed and I had to figure out how to secure that using some Kubernetes magic. But um, what, I, what I've seen is that a lot of red teams from like your traditional cybersecurity vendors, they really just feel like they're there to beat up the blue team, right? It just feels like sort of a bully coming in and saying, look at how bad you are. You suck. You didn't find any of this. And that was a lot of the pervasiveness around cybersecurity for a while. But now a lot of that attitude has luckily shifted, right? Where, look, guys, the only reason we hired you to be a red team is to help our blue team get better. So you need to work together to do that and accomplish that. And there's some firms out there. Um, in fact, Walmart has some of the best uh, red and blue team guys that I've ever met in my entire career. Both of their teams are fantastic. And the reason they've succeeded so much is because they have this partnership where they're just constantly sparring. The red team figures out a really novel way to go after some part of the Walmart environment. And then the blue team does eventually catch them, but it's it's all about, okay, well, that's really cool. How did you get here? And then what could I do to potentially detect you in this new novel way that you came up with literally just to break into this environment and just constantly having that uh, collaboration because it needs to be a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And what's, what's really interesting in that environment is, you know, a, a red team engagement, depending on how sophisticated it is, could be a year long, right? And for the first six months of that, the blue team may not even see anything that the red team has done. It's all maybe reconnaissance and staging mm. to make sure that when they break in, they have a way to control what they've broken into. Um, but a lot of the value out of that comes, hey, what did you spend those six months doing? What did you do? Oh, you registered a domain that looks just like mine. How could I potentially identify that to see if in the future someone else is staging something similarly? Wow. Or, hey, I responded in a way that actually gave you more access. So uh, this is something that we saw at that company a while ago where a blue team, when they're in an environment where there's a potentially real breach, right? Because the goal of a red team should be the blue team should never be in a position where they're like, oh, that's just the red team. We'll deal with it later. They need to react as if it is a real attacker constantly. Mm -hmm. and, and often what happens is for blue teams who haven't had that experience, they react in a way that's actually extremely advantageous to an attacker. An example would be we've had cases where a blue team person would log into a machine that we had compromised using their privileged domain account, which means hey, now we've got your credentials. We've got your privileged domain account. Thank you very much, Blue Team. You've made our job significantly easier. So a, a lot of it is just 
helping the blue team understand mm -hmm. how they should react calmly in, in a kind of structured way and think about how they're going to react to an attacker because reacting incorrectly could be disastrous, right? It could give the bad guys exactly what they need. And, and we see that a lot here at Kedalski Security and at other firms where blue teams who don't have that experience react poorly and cause, unfortunately, more harm than good when they're reacting. So I, I think that the most important part of a red team really is not just how do you break into this environment? That's always useful information as a defender. But how did I, as a defender, make missteps that made it worse? And how do I train my team to prevent that stuff in the future? So, mm, that's, wow. that's fascinating. I, I you know, <clears throat> you were talking about the sparring. And I remember it was early last year I did a security training uh, course. And I was, we were on like a campus where we would, you know, we were there the whole day type of thing. And, and then we would have lunch. Um, and snack breaks and whatnot in the cafeteria on this training campus. And the lunchtime conversations were worth almost more than the course was because, I mean, it was a fantastic yes. course, but the lunchtime conversations were great because the varied backgrounds of the people that were on this course uh, was fascinating, right? We had these like really hardcore risk and compliance folks. And then we had like, you know, um, kind of consultancy type people like us. And then we had really hardcore like red or blue team offensive and defensive folks, right? And so these guys would be talking about someone like the, and, and many of them represented some pretty large and very well-known organizations. And so you hear about the uh, ways they try and get in. And it's not even only from a, uh, from a you know, breaking through network layer type stuff, but like even just physical security um, penetration testing, right? Like trying to sneak in as a pregnant lady or, you know, get through security, yeah. physical security controls because you're pregnant and you can't fit. And, you know, that all of these like wildly crazy concepts that you just go, people do that. And I'm like, yeah, we run these types of operations all the time. Like get wow. really, really good looking girl to come in and try and walk by, you know, all that type of stuff. And it's amazing um, how they, you know, they would target people like target a particular security guard, physical security guard, because, you know, maybe he has a wandering eye. So you bring in an attractive young lady to try and, do you know what I mean? Like the, the social engineering aspect of this is astoundingly yeah. interesting but too. What's, what's the end goal, right? I mean, I think this is also quite important because, you know, like if we weren't humans and we didn't have free will and they weren't, uh, I don't want to swear, um, <laughs> that makes a change. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm thinking myself, ah, Pierre, I'm saving you here, pal. Um, I, like you get really bad people, okay, that yeah. want certain things for certain things. But I mean, like, to go and hire someone that is going to do that takes a lot of planning, a lot of motivation, a lot of money to orchestrate these sorts of social engineering. Uh, attacks and things like that. And, uh, what is the end goal? Is it to go, ha ha, I got in, or is it more of a like, okay, we're actually going to steal stuff, and it's actually corporate corp corporate espionage, and all these conspiracy theorists throughout the world were actually right. And you're thinking, I, I can oh. I can answer that very quickly, if, if I may, based <laughs> on the, the last three four weeks. I think the last four weeks we've had three post-breach um, requests. And my last one was from a, a bank, which I will not name, 
who on the basis of an email which came from a domain name which was one letter away from the production domain <laughs> right however had all the right spam records in place so spm and dkim all checked out issued a request to accounts payable with and you can see how, the, how long this breach has been in been in place i'll tell you in a second and sent a request to accounts payable to say please will you pay this amount the person from accounts payable said hang on this looks fishy should i respond to this and five minutes later an email came back from the attacking domain saying yes yeah. this is correct go ahead and pay and what's even worse is that the attacker had crafted a pdf document with three signatures which they had literally photoshopped on top of a PDF. So at, at, at first glance, it looked correct, but at second glance, you could see it was manufactured. It lost $400 on a Friday morning. So yeah, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the goal, I guess, is, is trying to secure all the aspects, right? All the elements. And there's this fascinating, so there's a, a podcast um, that I listen to quite a lot called The Darknet Diaries. And if you haven't checked it out, well worth listening to. Um, one of the episodes talks about, um, and I, I, I can't remember the exact uh, firm name, but a, a couple of guys who were hired to do some physical penetration testing by mm -hmm. a government entity. I think it was up in Iowa. Actually, it wasn't. It definitely it was Dallas, Iowa. I remember because I was like, oh, Dallas, no. Um, and uh, they essentially got caught, but knowingly got caught. They tripped an alarm at a courthouse that they had uh, managed to get into after some recon and whatnot. And so they waited for the cops and as they normally would, you know, when the cops come and arrest you, you give them a, uh, you know, a document that says, we were hired to do this, here's the signatures of all the people. Um, but that didn't, there was some kind of, um, I guess, uh, chain of command issue in that process. And these guys ended up getting arrested and prosecuted for doing this. And it was a pretty big, big, big deal, but fascinating story if you listen to not only the things that they've that they do to be able to, you know, try these mm -hmm. things. So, you know, I guess the point I'm making is very interesting. Um, it's a it's a very interesting concept, right? The whole kind of blue red uh, team thing. Um, friend, I, Chris, I, I, yeah, I, I want to challenge you on that because we're talking about companies like Walmart, who are large enough to have red and blue team, right? And obviously, they're guarding against, and this is where things get super interesting because companies of that size will suffer things like nation state attack and companies or or should we say attackers with literally unlimited budgets but what i'm finding in in customers both large and small lately um, who've been breached is that these are not companies with blue and red team these are just companies who have some really really basic things that they haven't bothered doing from a security point of view like they are still susceptible to things like password spray attacks and they're going to cloud like office 365 and they they haven't disabled legacy auth and then they're surprised because there's an attack and, and that's the I, focus, i'd love for right? you guys well i'd love for you guys now who are in the the dedicated security space to 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 pass some commentary on that where the uh, in my mind and I don't mean this as a scaremongering thing at all. Hear me right. I think most of the world 
who doesn't have any kind of security consciousness is so stunningly exposed that we actually beyond what Microsoft says in terms of assuming breach, they're just exposed. That's, I mean, that's a that's a great point. And I think that's that's part of the reason why I think it's important to have these types of conversations, right? Because I think there shouldn't be um, a, like a, a, a silo between the information technology group and the information security group anymore. Like this has to become, they have to be able to work together a lot more. And what's what's fascinating about the Good luck with space, that. No, and this is true, right? Because what's fascinating about the, the space, and, and Fran has some really good data on this as well, is that historically, the security teams and the, the infosec guys go and buy the security products separately from the people who are buying mm, productivity mm, products, mm, right? Mm. And so, what Microsoft has come in and done as well is we're bundling everything together. So when the productivity team buys M365, they're now getting all of the security products, right? And so yeah. what I had seen previously with working with large customers is that you go through this massive migration program and you're you know halfway through it. And then all of a sudden the security guys are like, hang on, what is this conditional access thing you guys are wanting to implement? Yes. Yes. Why weren't we involved? Why weren't we told? Right? And then time. all of a sudden they pump the brakes because then they're like, well, we don't want to use a Microsoft security product or we weren't involved in that decision. So now we need to go and understand what the product can do and go through the whole due diligence process. So there's Microsoft are kind of tipping the space upside down, if you will, in, in a sense, because you kind of have to, they're, they're forcing those teams to, to work together, I think. And I think that's yeah. where this thing becomes really, really fascinating. But to your point about being exposed, one of the things that I think is 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 important to mention is that, especially in the Microsoft ecosystem, those basic security controls exist. Folks are just not implementing them, right? So look yeah. at MFA. Like, what were the stats? Something like, it's like less than fifteen percent of 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 users are actually using MFA every month. Everyone in every tenant has the ability to enable MFA, but not everyone is doing it. That's For why included. Yeah, exactly. And so that's why, like, MF. We should start every every episode with like. MFA. Yes. <laughs> yes. So let yeah, me throw I, this one over to Fran for, for, for some commentary. Basic security stuff. Is yeah, there such a I thing? <laughs> there, there, really, there really is. I think um, what you'll find is that almost every compromise, large or small, if it's a small community bank or a large multinational, happens because of some small basic kind of misconfiguration of technology. Things that you've already mentioned, maybe an organization that doesn't have any multi-factor authentication, or they've enabled multi-factor authentication, but forgot about legacy protocols that don't support multi-factor authentication, which then give you access to email, which you can use to pivot as an attacker to another, another um, you know, method of compromise. I could trick Chris to do something on my behalf if I have access to uh, Kodowski security email as an example. Um, so I think that a lot of what you see is really the, the cause of this in my mind is two things. One, IT teams are moving really fast and they're constantly under immense pressure to deliver value to an organization, right? Because they need to, That's they're there to enable an organization to conduct their business. Nobody runs an IT team just because they love IT. They're there to enable an organization and, and they're moving very fast and they don't have the time to take a second and think about, okay, well, how, how does this change my exposure? I'm about to go 
and put this thing on the internet, or I've just migrated to Office 365, how does that change the way that someone could interact with my environment? Um, and that's where a red team comes in, right? Because a lot of the defensive guys, or even just IT guys, um, they don't know what they don't know. Uh, they don't know how a system could be misused. And the reason that hackers or attackers are so successful is because they're honestly all the time just being creative. How could I use this thing for what it exactly was not intended to do on my behalf to be able to break into an organization? So I think that a lot of it is the IT team just doesn't have the time, but they also don't have the the kind of concept of how do I misuse this thing to, to gain an advantage or break into this organization. And the second half, I think, is uh, security teams kind of all over the place have built this culture where they're just the no people. They're the people that nobody wants to talk to because they're going to cause a project to grind to a halt, right? They're not there to enable the business. They're there to just say no and tell the IT team, too bad, you got to go do this all again. Um, so I think that that what's really important uh, for any organization is to build a culture where the security team is an enabler to the IT team, right? An example of this is, is actually Facebook and some of the big um, like Silicon Valley companies, the security teams are working directly with the DevOps teams or the IT teams mm -hmm. to help enable security and make their lives easier. Um, a perfect example from Facebook is the Facebook security team wrote a uh, piece of code, a library that enabled secure checking of passwords. And they literally went to the development teams and said, hey, you guys don't have to worry about this anymore. Just use this thing that we wrote and you don't have to worry about it. There's not a lot of teams that are doing that. A lot of teams take a back seat and they're there to, like I said, say no, rather than collaborate with a technology team mm -hmm. and say, how do we make this project success successful, but securely? So I think really it is a lot of companies don't have the basics right because the IT administrator is too busy. They put something up, they forget about it. Nobody does inventory. Well, nobody, literally any company I've ever worked for, none of them do true inventory, correct? Nobody knows what they own. But at the same time, even if they know what they own, they don't know how they potentially have misconfigured it and how that could be advantageous to an attacker. So, yeah. So do you think that, um, just changing gears just a little bit here, but thinking about sort of more on the management side, do you think that there is a, a misunderstanding between organizations using a managed service versus um, you know, it, with an expectation, and, and this happens in the cloud too, right? There's, there there's certainly have been discussions that I've had where folks go, well, our on-premises environment's a mess, but we're, we're, we're going to AWS or we're going to Azure, so it's going to be perfect. And I was like, well, no, that's not quite how this works. Like you don't just throw stuff up into the cloud and then now it works, right? So do you think there's a there's also a bit of a misconception that people go, well, we've, we're moving to Microsoft, um, to, to the Microsoft, you know, N365 platform, Microsoft is going to deal with our security now. Well, what do you yeah, yeah. what are you guys seeing, right? I think so. I think absolutely. I think a lot of organizations, at least at the very beginning of, of cloud, if you will, right? Like infrastructure as a service, um, they didn't consider the shared responsibility model, right? They just saw, hey, I'm putting my data in AWS, now it's their job, or I'm putting my infrastructure in Azure, now Microsoft has to deal with it. That's not the case. And I think what you've seen is all of these companies, Microsoft and Google and 
AWS have started to enable their, their customers to build some really secure software and some very secure environments, um, essentially included, right, for free in their plans. They're, they're, they're doing a lot to enable their clients. Uh, Microsoft with MFA for free and all of the security features they've built into even base enterprise plans for Office 365. But organizations aren't taking advantage of them because one, they either don't know, or two, they think it's Microsoft's problem. The Microsoft's problem kind of aspect has changed. I think what you've seen in the security industry over the last few years is a lot of education that just because you put your infrastructure in AWS doesn't mean that you're now hands-off and you have kind of no longer responsibility for securing it. Uh, so, so hopefully that, that seems to be changing slowly but surely. Um, but at, at the same time, what I've seen that's unfortunate is a lot of traditional IT security guys, um, they don't know how AWS or Azure works, right? They don't know how Office works. So they're put in this position where they're familiar with maybe the on-premise legacy way to do things, but they also need to learn about these technologies to be effective at securing them. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of organizations aren't enabling their security teams to go and learn that stuff so they can be effective. Hopefully that yeah. answered your question. Yeah, that's a definite, that's a, that's a fascinating point. Um, do you think, um, I mean, there is obviously a very big difference between your traditional managed services type business, right? And Nick, you know a lot about managed services. It's something that you're involved with every day. Um, and then the concept of managed security services, right? I mean, is it with us just unpacking the differences there about what, what customers should expect when they sign up for one or both of those things? Because because managed security services is very different, right? And Fran, that's a part of your background too. So, I mean, you know, should we should we go into that just a little bit? I think that'll be a fascinating topic. Sure. Um, I, I just want to start by saying that it, it's really interesting to me because some of the nation state attackers that Nick mentioned earlier have found that the soft underbelly of these large megacorps are actually their managed service providers. Um, wow. There was a report put out, if you, if you Google the words cloud hopper, it was literally about how China or Chinese nation state actors were breaking into companies like IBM or other large managed service providers, not managed security service providers, because this one single company has access to a multitude of different environments for some very large organizations. So they were actually compromising their managed service providers to then pivot into other larger organizations because that may have been easier. So I think that what you're going to see and what we're going to continue to see is these really creative, truly, uh, nation state actors who have unlimited resources. They're going to target the big guys that have access to a lot of environments as, at mm -hmm. once because that's that's really valuable. And and what I've seen from a traditional managed service provider, someone who's maybe your outsourced help desk and who's helping you manage Active Directory and helping you you know deploy new new servers or what have you, um, they typically see security as kind of like a bolt-on, right? Something they have to charge their customers extra for. Um, and, and that's where this managed security service provider space came in. Um, and, and what I've seen, unfortunately, I'm going to be totally transparent here, is that a lot of managed service providers that are specialized in security, so managed security service providers, 
are actually detrimental to their customer security. Um, I've worked for a lot of MSSPs, and what happens is clients hire this MSSP, they no longer feel responsible for their own cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And the MSSP is not really built to support them in that mission, right? They're just like, oh, no, that's fine. That MSSP will deal with it. I don't have to worry about it. Um, and these MSSPs, a lot of them were built in really interesting ways. I'll give you an example. I used to work for an MSSP organization that was built because the company used to sell firewalls. And mm -hmm. one day, a sales guy sold a lot of firewalls. And the customer was like, yeah, but what if I paid you to manage them too? And the sales guy's like, yeah, that makes sense. We can make this profitable. And they built this entire MSSP that just kind of got bolted on, right? That's like, hey, okay, well, I'm going to go hire some fresh out of college kids to manage these, I don't know, thousand firewalls for this customer. And it just kind of snowballed. And what happens is these managed security vendors, they never take the time to think about, okay, well, how do I actually provide value to my customer in a defend you perspective, rather than just managing a firewall or managing a web proxy or whatever other security technology. Um, so, so truly, if I'm being transparent, spending my career in managed services, a lot of managed service providers are a detriment to their customers. And that's that makes me really sad personally, right? Because we should be helping our customers, but most of them unfortunately don't. I know that that wasn't exactly what's the difference between an MSP and an MSSP. And the real difference is one of them should hopefully be focused on security. Um, but, but truly, I think a lot of organizations need to kind of take a step back and understand what's the additional risk that I'm introducing to my business by hiring a company that will absolutely be targeted by threat actors. Yeah. It's also, it's, also an, it's, 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 it's not a one-size-fits-all thing as well. And I think a lot of MSSPs sort of fall short on that too, because let's say they're vendor specific. And so vendor specific, we only use Palo Alto or we only use um, FortiGate or whatever the case may be is. It doesn't encompass everything. It's not taking this mm -hmm. broader security look at it. It's more like, okay, well, the people that I'm hiring know this, so they will use that. And then what happens is that's what we are going to sell to the client. And then at least we know that we've got our bases covered. But yeah. the way you do one thing in one technology and the way you do something in another technology are completely different. And yeah. it's like you said it just a little bit earlier and moving back to this whole infosec versus IT thing. Um, and I, I find that's the biggest issue that I'm experiencing now at the moment personally is, it, yes, infosec say no because that's their job understood. Mm -hmm. But also at the same token, they're not very helpful. They're not very, they're, they're more like, how about you redo that and come back to me when it's done? And then yes. I will say yes or no. It's not like, okay, maybe we can do it this way or maybe we can do it that way or, because they're just like, no, come back, try again, as opposed to, that that helping that you were talking about. And I think it's very, very important, especially in the times where we're like, oh, well, AWS does this, uh, Azure does that. How about we just put an NVA and then it's the same both? How about no? <laughs> you know, do you know what I'm saying? And so what happens is you end up with two NVAs, vendor specific, 
in two separate clouds because you're trying to make them the same. But in actual fact, it should be, okay, well, there are different technologies, but you apply similar principles using their technologies and you end up gaining. And I think that's, that's, that for me is, is, a, is a big issue at the moment. I don't know about you. I think my opinion on this is that it's very much a cultural evolution of cloud computing, right? So if you think back to when we were deploying Exchange servers on-premises, um, and Nick and I worked the project probably 15 years ago, where this was very evident, right? The messaging guys only looked after the Exchange environment. Then you had, um, you know, guys looking after SharePoint, firewall team there, endpoint team here. Like you had like 20 different teams looking after all the various aspects of um, the productivity suite. With Office 365 coming in and 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 these things becoming more tightly connected, I think one of the evolutions I've seen, and certainly the organizations that I've worked with who have made the best strides or at least had the best adoption of Office 365 have been companies who have looked at this and gone, well, that structure doesn't work. We need to have a team of productivity people that, yes, maybe some person's skill set is more SharePoint or Teams focused. Another person might be you know, an identity person, but they need to work together to make the platform successful, right? I think that the next part of this evolution is getting the infosec teams and the IT traditional IT teams working together as well because at the end of the day like all of this stuff has to sort of melt together for it to become um, a successful and secure deployment like you can no longer um, look at just security as a thing it has to it has to be built into everything that you do right as a, as a default you know cloud first but I almost want to be like you know security first cloud second. <laughs> but that's no, it's, look it's really you. the way it's, it's, the way it's going to be, right? So much. Hey, what can I? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you on the infosec teams and IT teams need to work together. And I think honestly, the the biggest thing that any security team <laughs> internal to an organization can do is be more approachable and be willing to help more. You're not there yeah. to say no. And the more you say no, the more people will bypass you, right? Like yeah, if yeah. if you're just the no guy that's going to take a critical project and just halt it, nobody's going to come to you and it's going to make it to production and you won't even know it exists. Um, True story. And a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of security guys just make that mistake where they're high atop the tower and they're just the people who get to say, redo it or no, go do it this way. But at the same time, a lot of what I've seen personally is some of the older traditional security guys, maybe they're not familiar with AWS at all, or maybe they've never even written an application, right? A lot of what we're transitioning to is, hey, there's a lot of custom development going around. There's a lot of DevOps going around. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, how do I deploy things to cloud with like something like Terraform, right? And the security teams have never used these tools. So they're in a position where maybe they have, I don't know, a vulnerability scanning tool and they get the report and they go tell the developer, hey, go fix this. But they don't even know how to fix it themselves. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's the most important part of being a security practitioner is, sure, you should be aware of how attackers are breaking in and maybe you should be aware of security best practices. But maybe, just maybe, you should be aware of how to use the technology that you're trying to protect. 
because unfortunately I've seen a lot of security guys who have never deployed anything to AWS or never deployed anything to Azure. And I think some of the, the biggest value that I've ever found is putting myself in operational positions where I have to figure out I'm an operations guy now, or I'm an IT guy now, how do I deploy this? And then how would I secure it? So I, I really hope that what we see as a transition as we're as a security kind of community that we begin transitioning to, hey, I'm not just here to tell people don't do this or go redo it. I need to learn about the technologies. I need to test it myself. I need to try it myself. And then I need to collaborate with the IT team based on what I've learned to make them successful and make the business successful. Because no company other than cybersecurity companies is in the business of security. Security is a business enabler and a risk reducer. Nobody does security because they want to be secure. Truly, nobody. I love they're, this. they're all there to enable That's the business. Really good. There's mm -hmm. the title of the episode. I was just thinking yeah. that actually. Um, <laughs> I, um, so I think a couple of thoughts that I have on that, which is which is um, uh, kind of interesting, and you, you kind of brought up here is one of the things I've 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 learned in my time, and and you know the three of us spend a lot of our time in the community doing community stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, the vast majority of the last ten years, for me at least, have been uh, spent doing that. For Nick, it's you know even longer than that, um, and there's definitely a difference in the community interactions between you know, infosec folks and then just your, your traditional IT pro people, right? And you, it's very evident if you if you go on Twitter and you look at, um, and, and I think it's changing. I think the younger generation of infosec people are becoming more um, community focused, at least about kind of sharing things and, and being open to uh, just contributing to the community and taking and give, it's a give and take relationship, right? Um, but I, I certainly have found that there are, there's, there's a, a very guarded approach um, in the community, in the infosec community, uh, in many aspects, I think you know um, we've we've been very welcoming of uh, inclusivity in the in the IT pro community. I think it's and dev communities. Sorry, I always say IT pro, but I always include the dev guys into that as well because you know it's it's very much part of it. Uh, Microsoft has done a great job of that inclusivity message, but I find that that's still lacking a little bit somewhat in mm -hmm. uh, in infosec. And if you look at um, you know, I follow a few um, female infosec pros uh, on Twitter, and if you look at the abuse that they get from mm. men in particular, uh, it's disgusting, actually. And I'm 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 actually proud that that doesn't ha really happen in the Microsoft community, but that you know, it saddens me that that's still happening. And I think as a community, these things need to also be addressed because ultimately. We all have the same goal here at the end of the day, right? Which, which you know, as Fran said, it's it's about enabling productivity and reducing risk, right? And collectively, I just want to jump in there quick, and I want to say, like, are you guys not stressed, like, because if a hack happens, right, whose fault is it? So we hired you guys to fix mm -hmm. this problem, and we got hacked. So. <laughs> but I mean, that's like, part of the point we're just isn't, making, Isn't that right? why InfoSec's so grumpy? Is because they know <laughs> that it's their ass on the line if something goes wrong. And <laughs> so I, I don't know if I'd be able to sleep at night if that was, you know, my thing. I can tell you from experience that I know Fran doesn't sleep at night. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that, uh, honestly... Um, 
yes and no. Um, I think that most of the really good security people that I know um, absolutely have this in the back of their minds with everything that they do, right? Which, which drives them to be successful, which means they need to understand the technologies that they're securing. They need to have very strong relationships with the development teams and the IT teams and the infrastructure teams. So I think yes and no. I think what you'll find is that a lot of traditional security people will kind of sit back and say, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. You didn't listen to me. And, and never take a moment to reflect and say, have I personally built a culture where nobody wants to talk to me? So maybe that's why they didn't listen to me. Uh, mm. Or have I built a culture where if a team comes to me, I'm going to tell them no. So they're just going to bypass me and put it on the internet anyway. Is that not my responsibility? Yeah. Is that not my yeah. job and yeah. my fault? Mm. Um, so I think that a lot of what you see from traditional security folks, unfortunately, is I told you this was going to happen. You just didn't listen to me. Uh, so I, I I hope that there's a mixture of that. But some of the best security folks that I know, absolutely, we we stay up at night thinking about, oh, my God, okay, so how do I make this better? And a lot of the how do I make this better is not technology. It's relationships, and it's building a community, and it's working closely with teams outside of security. Um, and a lot of people don't do that retrospection, right? They don't think about, well, why didn't anybody tell me about this project? Is it because maybe I just I'm not good to talk to when I they when I get the project? You would say no. That's why. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. So I think um, I, I hope that some of that is changing in the community, but I, I don't know. And then also, really, the reality is, a lot of security vendors, unfortunately, have started selling these snake oil easy solutions. Just buy this thing. It has machine learning. It has AI. Mm -hmm. It uses the cloud. It'll just solve all your problems. Security is super hard. And <laughs> you need to be methodical. And you need to be detail-oriented. And I've never, until now, where we had the opportunity to build a managed service practice that I'm proud of, truly, I've never worked for a security company that literally sat our customers down and said, okay, this is gonna be really hard, but we're here to work with you. It's gonna take six months to really make sure we understand your business and make sure we methodically approach how we're going to secure your environment. Every other security vendor, every other security guy is like rapid time to value. Buy this product, it solves every problem. That's never the answer. That never works. And some of the most disillusionment that I've had personally as a cybersecurity person who truly loves like the security um, world and, and technology, and I love learning about things, is that there's so many security vendors that are just selling snake oil. And they're just mm -hmm. peddling stuff that they know doesn't work, but they're giving their customers a false sense of security. And it's just so disillusioning. Like, honestly, I don't know if this is the same for other parts of the IT world because I've been in security so long, but I just constantly feel that if I go to like some of the businessy conventions within cybersecurity, like RSA, I just walk around this space where vendors are just selling stuff that they know doesn't work. Um, and I don't know how those people sleep at night, right? Like, I, I don't know that. And I don't know if this is a systemic problem in technology or if cybersecurity companies are just like pretty scummy in general, most of them. 
So I, yeah, I you know, truly, I don't. <laughs> I think that honest, we've like, seen, we've definitely seen our fair share of that type of stuff in the migration space, right? Where, uh, what yeah. you know, the the expectations being yeah, set by, true. by migration vendors and or and or uh, consultant co consultancy companies who who do migrations. Um, don't always meet the, or match the reality of the of, of it, right? You're, oh, this is seamless. Your users won't even know. Like, yeah, I mean, is that really true? Like, you know, there's always going to be some when you when you undertake a migration project of any sort. There's always going to be some pain and hassle with users, right? And I think that's also why the whole um, organizational change management movement is has yeah. accelerated as much as it has. And you know, we've had some great uh, OCM guests on the show previously, but. So I think that exists everywhere, um, uh, but you know it's a good, it's a good point, and I and I think just again just honest honesty and transparency is just it's, it's important in every part of you know the way we do business, how we interact with our customers, um, and it's an important thing we can't lose sight of that, right? I hate to be that guy, but I've got to be that guy. Jeez, and, yeah, I think we we could have gone on for hours, dude. I know, I but part two is oh, is has to happen. <laughs> but before we go, I'd like friend to leave our listeners with, okay, I've I've heard the stuff and I'm really worried I'm not going to sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah. Give us a takeaway, ease, please. <laughs> what if if I am a? It's it's dialed right back down. I'm a. I'm an owner of a system. I could be a developer. I could be an IT pro. I could be a business person. I could be a CISO. I've heard all the stuff. I've heard the show. I'm thinking um, I want to quit my job. Instead of quitting my job, what are the one, two, or three, or something tangible? What can I do now? What could I do tomorrow? What could I do to be safer? Yeah, I'll start with the one thing that nobody does correctly. Inventory the most unsexy thing in security, but the most valuable. So please, whatever you're doing, try to figure out a way to automate inventory. You need to know what you have to know what you need to protect. The, the other things that I'll say are all of these vendors, Microsoft, AWS, Google, they've spent a significant amount of effort and time and money building security best practices and enabling your business and your developers and your teams to do things in their environments, in their clouds securely. So just take a moment and just go through and read some of the fantastic documentation that all of these vendors have around security best practices. Maybe before you go and roll out Office 365 or you go to Azure, just take a moment and read what those best practices are and familiarize yourself with how attackers are attacking. And then finally, um, I, I would say, help build security teams or hire consultants who are familiar with the technology that you're trying to protect. Uh, that's, that's really important. As you look to transition to the cloud or to these environments, you need to have security professionals who have actually used the technologies that you're trying to protect. Um, either in their personal time, in a lab, it doesn't matter. But whoever you're hiring, either internally or externally, make sure they've used it. Make sure they've mm -hmm. deployed a, you know, an EC2 instance or a Azure VM or, or, or whatever, so that they can help you understand how your team can secure some of those environments. Hopefully that helps, but uh, really those are the three things that I would, uh, would say. Yeah, 
inventory. Nobody does it right. Please try to do that. If you're going Wonderful. to the cloud fresh, figure out how to do automated inventory. All of these, all of these cloud platforms have a way to do inventory in one way or another across subscriptions or accounts. Try to use that as much as possible. Tagging, mm -hmm. man. Just tag everything. Stay for a reason. <laughs> yeah. That's very that's very insightful. And I think, you know, in, in many instances, the the attacker knows the platform better than you do, right? So yes. you really need to spend the time making sure that you actually understand what what you what we're working with here. So that's um, that's awesome, um, Fran. It's been awesome talking to you as always. Um, and uh, before we we go, is there anything that we could would, that you would want to plug? Um, I'm not sure how uh, active you are on social media, things like that. But if there's any way, you know, if you want to put that out there, now uh, feel free to to do that now. Um, guys, any closing thoughts from you? Yeah, I'll just say, hey, um, nothing really to plug. Uh, my Twitter handle is Francisk Erz. Ridiculous to find. Don't worry about it. I'll make sure that Chris has a, a link to it. But uh, it, it's been a pleasure, guys. It's been a blast. Um, really enjoyed talking to you and uh, hope, to, hope to be able to do it again. Oh, yes, awesome. yeah. definitely. Hey, everyone, before you go, we just wanted to say thank you for listening. We really enjoy putting this podcast together for you every two weeks. Please visit us at thearchitects.cloud or alternatively drop us a tweet. We'd love to hear what you have to say. At the Cloud Arc.